The newspaper business just ain't what it used to be, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. According to Pew Center Research, weekday circulation for U.S. papers fell 7 percent in 2015, and Sunday circulation fell 4 percent, both showing their greatest decline since 2010. At the same time, advertising revenue fell nearly 8 percent from 2014 to 2015. There's even a website, Newspaper Death Watch, launched in 2007 that chronicles the closure of newspapers in the U.S., and it lists hundreds of titles that are no longer in circulation. It's no coincidence that these declines roughly parallel the rise in prevalence of smartphones and tablets. But does this mean game over for newspapers, as Rupert Murdoch predicted in 2010? Or does it mean that only the most adaptable news organizations will survive? Today we'll hear from Professor Bharat Anand about his case entitled Shipstead. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Bharat Anand examines competition in information goods markets with a primary focus on media and entertainment. He's also the faculty chair of HBX, Harvard Business School's online education platform, and the author of The Content Trap, A Strategist's Guide to Digital Change, which is a very appropriate topic given the case that we're about to discuss here. Bharat, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Tell us, uh, how does the case start? Who's the protagonist and what's the challenge? Yeah, so the case um, is set a few years ago. Um, The CEO was Shell Amott. The current CEO is Rolf Eric Ristel. And um, in many ways, the challenge that um, Mr. Amott was facing is a challenge that Mr. Ristal or any number of CEOs of newspapers might be facing today. Uh, There's a longer-term challenge, which is how do you manage the transition of a news organization online? And that story obviously is still playing out. Uh, There was a near-term question. The question that uh, Shipstead Management had to confront was should they allow Google to crawl their websites Mm -hmm. or not? Uh, that's a question that obviously remains relevant today uh, in a slightly different form as newspapers, for example, debate whether to allow other aggregators like Facebook to access their content at given terms. And it's a real dilemma. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is your kind of area of expertise. What prompted you to focus on Shipstead? Yeah, so I'd been teaching um, media and digital strategy for several years partly in the context of the second-year MBA course that I was teaching here at Harvard Business School, Corporate Strategy. And so I was always on the lookout for interesting cases, you know, companies that have gone beyond the pale, companies that are trying to innovate, companies that have done interesting things, not just in the U.S., but around the world. About a decade ago, there was a cover story uh, by The Economist on newspapers. Mm -hmm. And Shipstead was profiled um, quite importantly in that story. So that caught my attention. Uh, literally around the same time, a former student of mine who had taken the corporate strategy course reached out to me, sent me an email and said, uh, Professor Anand, I know you're always on the lookout for some interesting cases. Uh, here's this company in Norway, which um, you know I know about because I just helped them do a deal. Um, mm. They seem very interesting. Um, you might want to think about looking at them. It intrigued me, and I started doing a little more research. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the case uh, was this sort of sweeping history that you give <laughs> of the newspaper business, which you know I found very interesting, and I'd like you to revisit that a little bit with us. <laughs> so news, in some sense, goes back um, a long way. Mm. You know, In the case, we talk about newsletters going back to the days of Caesar. Mm-hmm. 
when you had handwritten gazettes distributing official political and social news uh, for contests involving gladiatorial contests to military <laughs> like campaigns. The sports page, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, there were several key moments in the history of newspapers over the last 300 years. There was first uh, Gutenberg and the printing press, which allowed the mass production of news. Uh, it was first weekly and then later daily. Uh, during the American Revolution, uh, newsletters played an important role, mm-hmm. in particular the Boston Newsletter, as it was called. As newspapers uh, became more influential, questions immediately arose regarding freedom of the press. Uh, Sweden was one of the first countries in the mid-1700s to pass a law uh, protecting the press, and the U.S. followed suit. Then there was the introduction of the telegraph Mm -hmm. in uh, the mid-1800s, which was very interesting because in some sense, it's almost the analog of what's happening today. It was viewed as an opportunity and a threat by newspapers. Uh, Six newspapers get together uh, in the New York area to share the cost of telegraphic reports Mm -hmm. that came to be known as the Associated Press. Uh, Early 20th century, you had commercial advertising becoming more common. Uh, News shifted from more local to a wider reach. And because they now had a revenue stream, it shifted also um, not just from political news to more entertaining news. You had penny papers. And then you had a period of consolidation in the mid-20th century. Yeah. Uh, And so at some point along that journey, uh, it became more than just a source of information. It became a business and it developed a business model. uh, And there was no turning back once that shift happened. Yeah, that's right. And advertising was obviously critical in this whole process because you shifted from essentially news organizations getting political patronage to now having an independent revenue stream. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit specifically about Shibstead and and how they started because they were around for a long time uh, and saw many of these changes firsthand. Yes. They started about 170 years ago. Um, It was a uh, family-run company. They had a newspaper called Afton Poston, which was their flagship paper. It was uh, the translation of that is Afternoon Post. Around the time of the Second World War, there was another newspaper in Norway called Verdensgang, VG, started by resistant veterans. After the war, VG experienced a bit of trouble, was acquired by Shipstead. So you now had two newspapers and both with uh, pretty different cultures, pretty different uh, views. In the early 1990s, Shipstead goes public. Mm. And that obviously marked a turning point for the company. Uh, Around the same time, the last family CEO, whose name was Tinius Nagel Erickson, uh, created what's now called the Tinius Trust, which had um, a major ownership stake in Shipstead. But one of the things that they were trying to do was also protect the independence of the newspaper. And so this combination of sort of going public as well as safeguarding the long-term ownership interest through voting shares, essentially, turns out to play a critical role in what comes afterwards. It was also around that time that they themselves had a turning point and they made some careful strategic choices uh, that that propelled them to a different level. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So there were a few interesting events that took place in the early 1990s. Management gets together and tries to figure out what is the impact of the internet on the news business. Mm-hmm. There was a recognition within Shipstead that um, – this might severely impact all the revenue streams, circulation, advertising. And there was a feeling that uh, we don't want to be the dinosaurs anymore. We are the new dinosaurs in a sense. What can we do to get beyond that position? So there was that recognition Mm -hmm. uh, that there's something big happening. The second is intention. 
they decided to take aggressive positions in the online market to deliver growth. This is partly triggered by the fact that they are a public company now. Mm-hmm. So they have to deliver growth to their shareholders. And the third was an organizational decision, which is they decide in part to build up many of these online initiatives outside the traditional newspaper. This episode of Cold Call is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Things were good for a while uh, until uh, roughly around 2001 when we all know that the Internet bubble burst and a lot of businesses faced a reckoning. Yeah, so they engage in many new initiatives, many investments during the period of the 90s, uh, an online news initiative, an online classified site, a search engine, a portal, a free paper. As you said, Brian, 2000-2001 was a turning point, not just for Shipstead, for the entire industry. Huge losses for the newspaper business, Mm -hmm. partly because they realized that Uh, advertising revenue streams, which they'd hoped would really be a major source of revenue online, turns out to dry up. Uh, Most newspapers retrench, cut back investments. That's what their shareholders, in fact, were urging them to do. Uh, Shipstead decides to invest more. And this was important because they incurred uh, even greater losses than many other newspapers. Mm -hmm. It was a crisis in the management and boardrooms. Um, The board by the acknowledgement of Shell Amut, uh, had lost trust. And most of them were of the opinion that Amut should resign. Mm-hmm. So those were dark days, obviously, for him in particular. But what was the move that they made that helped to turn things around? Yeah, so it's very interesting. At this point, they had started investing in online classifieds. Now, online classifieds, uh, classifieds in general, account for about 40% of the revenue of a typical newspaper. It's remarkable. Probably more than half the profits because all you need is a sales force. And the way they had started this initiative was interesting. They had gotten together with several other newspapers in Norway and uh, were of the opinion that before we actually create an online classifieds uh, site, we needed to, uh, to have trust with readers. How do we get trust? We get it from the print brand. Several newspapers across Norway first create a brand called Finn, mm-hmm. which they then take online. Um, and the idea was to go national. The dot-com bubble bursts. Uh, most of the other newspapers feel there's no future. Uh, they essentially reallocate the ownership st- shares in the online classified site in Finn, which turned out to be one of the best things that happened for them. Mm-hmm. They go online. They start seeing some nice growth. Uh, and that's when they actually got scared. Part of the reason is uh, this was the first time they actually recognize clearly that classifieds is what we might call a winner-take-all market. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't compete neck and neck uh, with your competitors for 35 versus 40 share. If you win in classifieds, you win the entire market. Part of the reason is it has this very interesting dynamic that we often refer to as feedback loops. Uh, You know, if you think about the simple question, which classified site do you go to, Mm -hmm. you'd go to the site where there's the most sellers, the most advertisers. 
uh, where do the advertisers list? Where there's the most buyers. More buyers, more sellers. More sellers, more buyers. And so if you win classifieds, you win the entire game. That's when they recognize that there are some pure play verticals that are growing pretty nicely as well. And this is not going to be the end game where you have four players all divvying up share. Mm-hmm. That's when they start investing more aggressively. Okay. Uh, the other area that you that you address in the case, and this addresses uh, the topic of your book as well, are the sort of challenges that they faced in bringing news online and you know content online. It's different than the kind of decisions that they make editorially with the paper. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's an organizational challenge to begin with, which is um, – you know, how do we create an online news site where we can borrow the content from print, which is the natural way to create it? Uh, there's always a concern about, you know, what's the price point at which we're giving away news online? And so there's this classic cannibalization concern, which exists uh, not just for news, for classifieds, and frankly, for almost any business that we encounter today. So that's the first challenge. The second is a challenge of mindset which is in the early days, everyone viewed the internet as essentially a distribution channel Mm -hmm. for news. Just take content and just put it out there. Uh, This is about the time when they start realizing that we can do much more than this, that this is not just a channel of distribution. We can actually use technology in a way to even change the way we present news. And that mindset ends up being central to virtually everything they do afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'll just give you some examples Um, in terms of how it plays out. So if you go to the Shipstead website, news sites today for Afton Post and Ouija, you see a few things that are quite interesting. The first thing you see is there's almost only pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's bold font. There's almost no text. Uh, by the way, the story of how uh, this starts is, is also somewhat interesting. One of their first hires was a photographer. Mm-hmm. He was coming from VG Print. His name is Espen Eagle Hansen. He's today the editor-in-chief of Afton Poston. And he says, wow, this is fantastic. I can just put pictures here. Yeah. <laughs> now, they start putting pictures. And as they start putting the more recent pictures, they're just pushing the older pictures down mm-hmm. to the bottom of the screen. The screen size gets longer and longer. And um, again, if you go to the websites, you'll see that the length of the page is much, much, much longer than the page of almost any news site today. Now, that happened almost by default. They didn't have an IT team that yeah. was essentially sort of taking the the stories and, you know, nicely allocating it to different pages. The editor-in-chief, Tori Peterson, walks in and sort of basically says, what's going on? This looks crazy. Mm-hmm. They then shorten the page to make it more in line with other sites, and they find that traffic drops. They then run some experiments, and what they find is people like to click through, but they like even more to browse. Uh Now, it's very interesting because today we now see infant scroll in pages like Facebook and LinkedIn and so on. Right. Uh, this was one of the first news sites which actually starts this. And it's mobile devices that really rely on that infinite scroll too. So they were ahead in that game too. There are uh, many other changes that they make as well. And again, part of this comes from hiring people who have no legacy or experience in newspapers. Mm -hmm. So they're just trying different things on the internet. One of them is if you scroll down any screen on the VG or Afton Post websites, you won't see neat sections. You know, here's a politics story. Here's a world news story. Here's a local story. You'll see a mix-up of different stories, um, travel, culture, sports, politics, Uh, Again, sort of makes you go back and think about 
this idea of sections. Why did we have sections in newspapers? Mm. Part of the reason we had sections was essentially a coordination problem. You know, you give the editors in charge of sports and travel and metro and politics responsibility to come up with the different pages from their teams, and then you put them together. Mm-hmm. Oh, it turns out on the internet, you don't need sections because you can move stories around almost seamlessly. And their idea is in every screen, we want something for everyone. Uh, so that's part of the reason why they end up with the format they do. You know, then, of course, you have interactivity, which is users could upload, you know, images, content, stories themselves. So if you start looking at this, uh, it's, uh, there's a phrase that we now use a lot, which is uh, being digital first. Uh-huh. You know, how can you actually uh, take the internet and new technologies and not just use it as a distribution channel, but actually reimagine your content, your product? Uh, they exemplify this mindset. And there's the second tension that they talk about uh, in the case about trying to borrow content or assets from the print organization, but mm-hmm. at the same time trying to forget certain habits. And that tension really, again, is something that's central not just to Shipstead, but almost any organization today. Right. How is that working out culturally at Shipstead? I mean, is there a feeling of competition between these two groups, or do they see each other as interlocked? Or? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. So uh, in the early days, uh, the online sites essentially report to print. That turns out to be challenging because they've not proven themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the fear of cannibalization. They then spin these online news sites and classified sites off. Um, probably the most important function that happened during that spin-off period was uh, what happened in HR. You're hiring people with, again, almost no experience in the legacy business. Mm-hmm. You can try new things. That's what fundamentally changes the culture. They then, after a while, start reintegrating uh, after the online sites have proven themselves. But at the same time, you know, one has to be careful because many other newspapers have tried this reintegration and it hasn't worked. You get completely consumed by print again. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things that help them. One, these sites are actually taking off because they had invested early. They're actually proving that they can generate revenue and lots of revenue. The second is, in effect, they had a dotted line to the corporate center, meaning decision rights on what to do or what not to do rested with corporate, not with Afton Poston or VG Print. And the third is you had internal competition Mm -hmm. because you had VG, for instance, being very aggressive online, and that starts affecting the culture in the Afton Poston newsroom. Can we go back to that notion then in the book about uh, recognizing and managing connections across users? Does that apply to what Shipstead is doing? Yeah. So one of the main concepts that I talk about in the book is this uh, tension between content and connections. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the title of the book is The Content Trap. Uh, one of the important traps is this mindset that uh, companies, media companies, and, and in fact, many companies have that... Uh, somehow the answer to trying to succeed in a digital world where there's uh, product clutter is to produce even better content. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this idea that somehow the best content will save us uh, or that's the route to success, uh, that often turns out to be wrong. And and part of the reason is, um, as I point out in the book, in digital worlds, connectedness is is a central feature um, of behavior. It's something that we take for granted, but it turns out to have huge implications. In the case of Shipstead, there's at least two ways this plays out. Uh, One, obviously, in classifieds. Classifieds is what you might refer to as a connected product. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's connections between buyers and sellers, right? That's essentially what drives success. So they first recognize this, that it's actually the connected product that sits at the center 
of a newspaper's um, success, financial success, mm-hmm. not just the content we produce in the newsroom. But that idea then translates into the culture of the newsroom. The question they ask today when covering almost any major event is not what's the best story we can put out, but how can we help readers help each other? And there was a very interesting example of that uh, a few years ago. You had this volcanic ash crisis mm-hmm. yeah. um, originated in Iceland, spreads over Norway, and then all of Scandinavia and Europe. Air travel is disrupted. Uh, the most popular form of content that was put out on their websites had almost nothing to do with uh, the volcano itself. You know, you might think it's about uh, pictures of the volcano or right. health implications. No. Uh, air travel was disrupted. Uh, people's one question was, how do we get from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they start sharing messages and information. And Shipstead essentially creates an app within seven hours, which allows people to communicate. That wow. turns out to be the most popular thing. So this comes back to this idea of connections, right? It's all about user connections and how do you tap into it, recognize it, exploit it. That's great. Um, that's great. So you've discussed this uh, in class. I'm curious about what kind of reaction you get from students when you talk about the case. There's probably two or three kinds of reactions. I mean, the first is uh, sort of surprise that uh, they invest so aggressively at a point when the rest of the industry is retrenching. Mm-hmm. When you dig into that decision a little more, you realize that it wasn't just about beliefs and assumptions. You know, oftentimes when we think about corporate change, we rush to a solution. But if you haven't diagnosed the problem right, it doesn't matter how smart we are. You right. might be barking up the wrong tree. So it's a very sobering question about trying to make sure we actually even get the problem right. What is the problem you're trying to solve? There's this uh, second principle or tension that, that uh, comes out in the case quite clearly. You know, how do you make sure you can innovate, but at the same time, do it in a way that borrows certain assets. Because if all you're doing is just setting up a startup venture far away from your core business, you're no different than a garage entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that uh, says you're going to succeed any better than them. The third really has to do with this idea of looking ahead as opposed to looking backwards. Um, You know, the financials of most newspapers in the early 2000s did not indicate there was a crisis coming. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big lessons about corporate change, which is if you wait for the problem to show up in your financials, it's often too it's late. too late, yeah. Uh, so how do you do that while still trying to preserve what you have going for you? Yeah. Uh, frankly, it's, uh, it's a case that uh, you know, many CEOs, many leaders, many managers, entrepreneurs often describe as inspiring um, for them to think about new ways of doing business. It's affected us as, as well, frankly, at Harvard Business School. Um, It has uh, deeply influenced my own thinking around change in the digital world and being, quote-unquote, digital first. And it did influence some of the choices we made in HBX as well. Yeah, that's fabulous. Bharat, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Brian. You can find the Shibstead case along with thousands of others in the Harvard Business School case collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenny. Thanks for listening to Cold Call, the official podcast of Harvard Business School.